Welcome to Decolonizing Diaries, a podcast brought to you by SIT, IHP, Human Rights, World World Learning. In beginning this research, I knew I needed a better question. I knew I needed something that would make this more grounded or more informed, but I just didn't have the knowledge yet. So I knew only one thing, and that was that I wanted to know more more about what people in Nepal and Jordan and in Chile think about education, about intelligence even, about achievement. I had no idea exactly what I wanted to know or how I would do this or what they would tell me, Um, but the goal was to remain open. And you'll find out my beginning framework was drastically changed. I began my research tiptoeing mostly because I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to be ethically perfect. I wanted to make zero mistakes. I didn't want to be controversial or critically analyzed or told that I was doing things wrong. I especially did not want to be told that I was speaking for others, that I was misrepresenting a culture, that I was representing a culture poorly or in a negative light. I also, after reading to Hugh I. Smith, an indigenous woman who is also an indigenous researcher, um, who wrote, quote, it appalls us that the West can desire, extract, and claim ownership of our ways of knowing, our imagery, the things we create and produce, and then simultaneously reject the people who created and developed those ideas and seek to deny them further opportunities to be creators of their own culture. That is exactly what I don't want to do. That's what I didn't want to do. Um, And you can be the judge of how well I stay true to this, but here we go. Let's start in Nepal. I met first with Amrit Yanzan, the National Technical Advisor for the Ministry of Education. He is a trained linguist. He let me buy him tea. um, And we talked about his advocacy for endangered languages in Nepal. Nepal is incredibly ethnically diverse, having, according to the 2011 census, 125 caste and ethnic groups and 123 languages. But according to the National Foundation for the Development of Indigenous Nationalities, which is a mouthful, in Nepal, as of 2005, only 13 languages are safe. considered safe. This is inextricably linked with the caste system and this outstanding display of language suppression and death is actually rooted in a deep history of language and cultural suppression in Nepal based on the caste system. Lower caste meant less likely to be taken seriously as an autonomous body of culture, history, and language. So even though the constitution of the Kingdom of Nepal recognizes that Nepal is a multi-ethnic and multilingual kingdom and spells out what linguistic rights should look like in Nepal, there is a serious lack of recognition and understanding of the role that multilingual education can play. Amrit Yanzan delineated these ways, which are multilingual education could and would increase enrollment, retention, and achievement in the formal school system. 
And this is where my definition of education rights really started to shift. So Amrit made it clear that it's a child's right to have access to mother tongue education and that in his experience, dropout rates are high for communities whose languages are not represented in textbooks, in classrooms, or in the government. And this makes sense. You should be able, as a child, to go to school and have some representation in the classroom of the language that you are speaking at home. You shouldn't feel ashamed to use your language in the classroom. We can tie this back to the U.S. and our quote-unquote English-only education, which is really widely known for embarrassing and suppressing Spanish-speaking children in classrooms. In the case of Nepal, Amrit calls this language murder, not language death, like most linguists, linguists do, um, because it's systemic oppression. It's cultural suppression. It's another nod toward homogenization. So the work that Amrit does in the meantime is focused on helping communities combat language murder. He does this through community empowerment. He doesn't think that he has tools outside of the indigenous community that they desperately need. He says they just need a push. He says once he comes in, explains the basic framework of how to document your language, they begin to have their own sense of confidence. They have their own leaders. They begin the process of reinvigorating their language. In Nepal, it became obvious. Language is a fundamental part of not only education rights, but human rights. As an indigenous Nepali scholar writes, without our language, we cannot be human. So my research has drastically changed. From New York being titled, Access to Education and Indigenous Ways of Knowing, to Language Rights in the Classroom for Indigenous Peoples in Nepal. Now I'm traveling to Jordan. I have no idea where my research is going to turn, and my plan is just to start asking people what they perceive to be the most prevalent, obvious injustices in the classroom in Jordan. I interviewed Nadim Hori. I wanted to talk to him about a publication that has his name on it, which is titled Barriers to Education for Syrian Refugee Children in Jordan. This report was published in May of 2016 by Human Rights Watch. And after talking to Mr. Hori, a theme started to emerge in my research. National sanctions, ones that seek to homogenize and suppress differences in the classroom, are erasing kids from the formal education system. Mr. Hori pointed to one such national sanction, which is called the three-year rule, a regulation created by the Ministry of Education, and it bars school enrollment to all children, Jordanian and Syrian, who are three or more years older than their grade level. According to a report by the UNHCR, this one rule barred some 77,000 Syrian children from the formal education system in 2014. The Human Rights Watch report also makes clear that even when Syrian refugee children can attend school without issue, quote, teachers in host communities and in refugee camps said they found it difficult to teach some Syrian children who showed clear signs of trauma. A growing number of Syrian children receive psychosocial support, but others who need it drop out of school. Additionally, the conditions of schools and refugee camps 
physically are inhumane at best. Mr. Hori talked about overcrowding, about lack of hygiene, about insects, about poor teachers, which really just means poor, poorly trained teachers. And in other cases, children face severe harassment by Jordanian children in school or walking to school. UNICEF reported that 1,600 Syrian children dropped out of school in 2016 due to bullying. So what are the injustices in the classroom here? Obviously there are many. But though the contexts are very different, Jordan and Nepal's education dilemmas have one common thread. By refusing to incorporate differences linked to history and culture in the classroom, we are committing deep, lasting instances of violence for children especially, but whole communities overtly. The 2012 Jordanian ad campaign exemplifies this perfectly. By advertising, quote unquote, we are all Jordanian, you're advertising homogenization. Though well-intentioned, the violence in ignoring diversities and cultural needs in the classroom and in a country is still violence. In the final context of Southern Chile, the Mapuche peoples are fighting their own brand of violent homogenization. Chilean Mapuche woman and indigenous language researcher Elisa Loncon Andeleo writes that, literally meaning language of the earth, Maputungun, is playing a central role in preserving Mapuche people's culture and historical legacy. An elder woman in the Mapuche community I met with described this as, quote, a fight against the capitalist system. We must fight so that we can live in harmony, in equilibrium with the land. This way of life is being threatened not only by the system as a whole, but specifically by large overwhelming corporations that are seeking to buy the Mapuche peoples out of their water and land rights. This has done significant violence onto the Mapuche community and culture as a whole, specifically in regard to their language. In a 2009 case and study survey, only 12% of the indigenous population the Mapuche people speak and understand their language. The majority of them are over 60 years old. In Chile, there is no recognition of linguistic rights for people, but the same Mapuche woman and indig indigenous language scholar, Antaleo, wastes no time in pointing out that there are initiatives already among the communities involved for the empowerment of this language which, quote, offers hope for the future in spite of cultural colonization. Antaleo only briefly mentions how Chilean law has failed her Mapuche community. This is probably a non-surprising element of, of life for a people so systematically repressed by this government. She instead decides to highlight all of the movements that Mapuche people have created in order to save their own language. She says that, in general, aboriginal art is a good way to spread languages. Theater, singing, poetry, and painting are good examples. In Chile, the Mapuche poets and writers have made a great contribution to the writing of Mapu Sungun. But most importantly, she highlights the why, and it's important to recognize the why. 
she says that this loss of indigenous language was not the voluntary choice of the peoples, obviously, but rather was the result of the political oppression that has befallen them, as well as the loss of land and the imposition of a way of living, along with the already centuries of colonialism and today neoliberal economics and national and global policies that seek homogenization of minority cultures. So what are the implications of this homogenization across three cultures? The mass language murder in Nepal, the exclusion of migrant children's needs in Jordan, and the erasure of Mapuche land, language, and lineage in Chile. The implications of my research, I think, are twofold. First, it's imperative to address the systems in place that have created and propagated this violence. Namely, colonialism, capitalism, globalization, and obviously, hopefully by now, homogenization. It is imperative to acknowledge how I, and possibly you, are implicated in contributing to these structures. My role as a researcher is simply to raise this up and also raise the voices up of those who have been screaming for decades. And thus I hope to contribute to the next generation of human rights research that lifts up the resistance work that has already been and is being cultivated directly by the communities impacted. Though this realization came really late in my research game, specifically came in Chile, I would like to encourage you, listeners, to support these Mapuche efforts at language conversion and conservation. The links to videos curated by several Mapuche poets, musicians, and artists participating in their own language revival and resistance are available in the podcast notes. Thanks for listening.